This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And in this week's episode, we have another face-off for you. This time it's a little bit more of an obscure one. We are taking a look at two movies from the filmography of George Clooney. It's face-off time again, and as you've just heard, we're going to be dealing with two lesser-known movies from one of the biggest stars on the planet, still, Mr George Clooney. First off, we're going to be looking at 1987's Return to Horror High. Okay, so for Return to Horror High, I'm going to read the synopsis, not from IMDb this week, I thought I'd shake things up. I'm going to read it from the back of the 88 Films Slasher Classics Collection Blu-ray. A young George Clooney is among the cast being stalked and slaughtered in the 80s slasher classic Return to Horror High. Calling it a slasher classic is a bit debatable, but we'll get there in a bit. (laughs) Before Wes Craven's scream defined the style of postmodern horror movie, Return to Horror High was offering its own tongue-in-cheek nod to the tropes and tribulations of the contemporary hack-em-up flick by having a group of fright filmmakers hunted and harassed by a mysterious marauder in a deserted educational establishment. Yes, this is not the return to teenage thrills and spills that the cast and crew were hoping for when they decided to shoot in Horror High. So-called because in the past it had been the site of a bloodbath killing spree. Now, years later, the frights and fun are about to come thick and fast as the serial slaughterer makes an unexpected comeback. One of the most inventive of all the 80s slice and dices, Return to Horror High makes its worldwide HD debut in this garish and gory new 88 films release. Well, it's not a new release now, but that's what it says on the back. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, as you said, I don't think it's a classic, but it's an interesting movie because before Scream was being all self-referential, you got Return to Horror High doing a very... Not may, maybe not a very similar thing, but it, there's a film within a film going on here. In fact, at some points, there's a film within a film within a film here. It's following a group of filmmakers who is, well, they're restaging a true life set of murders at Crippin High. And these murders took place in 1982, and it's five years later. And they're structuring a horror movie using the real life murders as their inspiration. But what do you know? The cast start dying off, 
has the murderer come back? Is it somebody else? Well, all ends up being revealed. And it's kind of... It's an interesting movie. I don't think it works all the way through. It tries something different. It's not a fairly standard slasher movie. And it's got some clever tricks up its sleeve. I just don't think it quite makes it over the line. Absolutely. For me, it really didn't hold up at all. I mean, I am the Scream generation. So for me, finding out that there was this um, kind of pre-Scream meta slasher out there, you know, I was very intrigued to check it out. But yeah, it's very dated and it contains a lot of misogynistic attitudes. It doesn't even really parody them as such. It kind of plays into them. That's how I kind of felt about it anyway. But we are going to talk about the man himself, George Clooney, and his role in this film. So this was his debut movie. He'd been working in television prior to this. And he is playing the main part in the movie. He's a cop. And then he literally decides to walk off the set and tells the director that he's going on to bigger and better things. And I think that is probably one of the funniest moments in this movie, especially with hindsight. And he is the first to be killed off. So arguably you could kind of say that we have a Drew Barrymore situation going on here. It's unexpected that George Clooney is the first to die. I mean, he's top build on the Blu-ray as well, but you know, that's the only way you're going to sell this thing. I mean, he's considered a Hollywood heartthrob and I don't know, like looking at the cover of this movie, it's very schlocky. You've got a skeleton in a cheerleading costume, which I think is a great cover. It's a great image, especially to embody that kind of B-movie 80s slasher. I love it. But yeah, I don't really think if you're into George Clooney for maybe more of his later work, (laughs) this is necessarily going to appeal. Yeah, so with George Clooney dead after 13 minutes, well, that's it for us discussing Return to (laughs) R.I. So we're just going to go on to the next... No, we're not going to go on to the next movie. In both of the movies that we're covering today, he's got more of a supporting role. In the second movie, he's got much more prominence but here he's set up to be this heartthrob in the movie and immediately he's bumped off which kind of triggers off all the rest of the incidents you're right about the misogyny it is trying to shine a light on sleazy movie producers but there's so much of it that it's laboring the point and you kind of think it's celebrating it rather than criticizing it There's an awful lot of points in this movie where male characters stare at breasts. Yeah, and you don't really get that in the Scream franchise as such. You might get the the odd comment here and there, but Scream isn't renowned for its gratuitous sex scenes. You know, it makes commentary on them, but it it doesn't actually go there. Whereas this was very much in line with um, the kind of 80s trend of women having to get their boobs out in horror films. And I think not treated very sort of fairly I guess because in horror movies back then you either had the final girl who was meant to be very straight laced and would never have sex or you'd get girl who was kind of more outgoing and of course then to pay the price for that she'd end up being um, slaughtered so that was the the kind of direction it's going in so as I say it's kind of ahead of its time in certain ways as you say it tries different things but I think it just tries to be over clever and by the end you're kind of fed up with it because it just has one twist too far. I get it's just trying to play with the audience's mind a bit, 
but I think, yeah, I think it just it overdoes it. Yeah, it ends three times, basically. And that's one ending too much. I mean, arguably, it's two endings too much. But I'll give it the first two. The last one is kind of... Nah, not really. I mean, we're going to have to spoil the ending really here to explain. So after all the slashing antics and the body count rising, it is revealed at the end that, in fact, nobody has died. It's all a stunt by the filmmakers. And at the end, all the people who are under the sheets, who are supposed to be dead, get up and drive away. Now, that's quite a fun twist. However, throughout the movie, you've got the police department looking at these bodies. How did they not spot that none of these people were dead? I mean, okay, the police department are shown to be a set of oddballs, not least of which uh, Maureen McCormick's character, Officer Tyler. Maureen McCormick was uh, Marsha Brady in the Brady Bunch TV series. She's got a very strange role here. She's this kind of weird, oversexed cop. I can forgive it for being sort of over the top in some ways, but it's again, it's just a, it's a symptom of this movie's treatment of its female characters. It's trying to spoof the slightly ditzy, large-breasted woman that you normally get in these movies. But rather than having anything jerky to say about it, it just presents her in a series of sequences where she's just behaving strangely. It's a good performance, and it's probably one of the more memorable ones in the movie, but you do feel slightly uncomfortable when she's around, and I don't know whether that's the intention, but no, every time she came on, it's like, ooh, I'm I'm not sure I like watching her in this movie. No, I felt exactly the same, weirdly enough. I think, you know, she really does get into the performance, but it's way too over the top and really silly. It's too silly to even be funny in a lot of ways. And you're just thinking, yeah, a woman like her would not be sleazing over the men that are on offer in this film. (laughs) No, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, so as well as the whole three endings, of course, you get even a dream sequence in the middle of it to throw you off. And then you get the big reveal of who the killer is and the whole revenge plot. Which is, yeah, it's it's just typical for the slasher movie. It's all to do back to do the family and that, that type of stuff. But before we get to the killer reveal, we have a guy rip his face off to reveal it was a mask the entire time. And that's a very convincing mask. Yes. And obviously, they just switch actors. But seriously, that was... I was kind of like, okay, right. <laughs> I see what's happening here. And then, obviously, it then goes one twist too far and then at the end of the movie because there's a screenwriter who's very prominent throughout the movie and we meet him at the beginning when the cops are questioning him and then he goes kind of into the flashback see this is getting so confusing already there's a flashback of the start of the filming process and he's retelling all that and then we get to the point where the bodies come up And then we see him at the end, and then it turns out that he is actually writing Return to Horror High, this movie that we've just watched, because the movie within the movie is actually just called Horror High. Yep. And then he looks over at a photograph of his father, who happens to be the person who's revealed as the killer. It's just bonkers. It's just absolutely bonkers as a film. And I just don't think it holds up, because it's so hard to get on board with, because it just takes it too far. 
yeah, it ties itself in knots trying to be clever and it doesn't really work in the end. It's probably something that stood out at the time. I do remember renting Return to Horror High and being quite amused by the twist at the end, but I don't think it was very memorable. In fact, I'd forgotten quite a lot of Return to Horror High. In fact, I'd forgotten that George Clooney died in it. That's how memorable it was. You'd think that you'd spot something like that. He's like only in half of the first act, but I didn't even remember that. Um, There are a couple of nice twists. I like the fact that Laurie Lethin is playing three different people in the movie. She's playing the actress herself. She's playing the person who's in the current movie. She's playing somebody in the flashback. So it's got some good ideas along the way. And I suppose they're trying not to make a standard slasher movie. But at some point, it's got to work, even on its own internal logic. And by the end of it, you just think, well, it's just one stupid twist on top of another stupid twist. And by the end, when the screenwriter is revealed to be the guy who is trying to pull the strings and trying to facilitate all these murders. And then at the very end, when he's typing up the screenplay to the return to Horror High, there's blood drips on the page. And then he looks across and he says, oh, dad. So he's dad, who has been the killer all along. And the last time we saw him, he'd been shot to pieces by the cops. He's turned up again. Now, I know that there's lots and lots of unconvincing returns for psychos in horror movies. But this one, stretching it a bit far, even by genre standards. And I think you get to the point where you don't even know what is real and what isn't. Yeah. It plays around with it so much. You just end up kind of confused by the end. Like, when I looked at this movie, I was expecting, like, a good time, something a bit schlocky. I could switch my brain off to and enjoy. Maybe I didn't give it enough credit on the surface, but by the end, I just could not enjoy it as much as I wanted to because it was just getting ridiculous. And you're thinking, so what's happened here? And and even the killer has two deaths because yeah. we think he's dead. He's been stabbed with a javelin, I believe. Yes. And then, as you say, he's shot by all, all the cops. So you have the whole um, trope of the killer always comes back, which was then obviously a very prominent feature of the Scream franchise. Yeah, it's enjoyable to a point. I think it's an interesting one for the time, but I wouldn't re-watch it, I don't think. And I don't think I'd really recommend it. I think there's probably better slasher movies out there that you should check out before this one. Yeah, it also tries to lampoon low-budget filmmaking, which the next movie we're going to be discussing really does lampoon. And there are some nicer sides about low-budget movie making where they pass off these people disappearing as just attrition because they say, oh, people walk off the set of low-budget movies all the time because there's no money and they're not getting any sort of benefit for this. So actors will just disappear. They'll think, oh, I've had enough. So they kind of pass off the body count as people who have just got fed up of being in the movie and have walked away and they can cast somebody else. That's quite funny. The sleazy producer, Alex Rocco, he's kind of funny with what he's got to do, but a lot of what he's got to do is be really hideously awful to people. Now, he's really good at being hideously awful to people, but after about five minutes of that, you kind of want him to do something different. Because he's always going on about how to get more nudity into the plot. And I'm sure that there are producers out there who are like that. And I'm sure that it's based on somebody that the writers probably knew at the time. But if you've seen somebody behave like this for 60, 70 minutes, it does get a bit wearing. Because it's just one note. The jokes are all coming from the fact that he just wants to see boobs all the time. 
tell that joke once or twice it's funny tell it about seven or eight times it's not funny no absolutely i found that element of it really tedious as well it just got repetitive and i think it's that idea of what filmmakers think horror audiences want to see so it's like just throw all the blood at it possible throw all the gore and throw all the nudity at it but i think it doesn't give its audience enough credit because as genre fans we want to see something with a, a bit more bite to it interestingly um looking on wikipedia it said that in order to avoid an x rating the scene within a scene sequence in which the biology teacher's heart is dissected had to be pared down in post-production so i think that was a pretty cool death scene in the movie cleverly done but again the professor he was just a sleazeball as well and just his scenes were uncomfortable the fact that he would only give good grades if the attractive teen slept with him, it was just, oh. Yeah. It, it is the best scene in the movie. The, the dissection is it's the cleverest and it's the most entertaining scene in the movie. I can see why the American censors probably got a bit upset about it. But in the end, even that gore is kind of passed off as being fake, ultimately. So, taking the movie as a whole, it's kind of gory but it isn't because the killings are not really actual they're all faked so you are just seeing the effects i mean the effects guy kind of is your standard movie effects guy who's very geeky and slightly psychotic i think probably affects people are, are sick of seeing them portrayed like that i'm sure that people who, who do special effects in fact i know people who do special effects they aren't really like that they're not all complete maniacs i'm sure there might be the odd one all the stereotypes of movie making are in return to horror high so all the archetypes you know and love are gonna be in this movie which on one hand they're easy to identify on the other hand you just think yeah can you give us something a little bit different please being a bit harsh on the movie because i guess in terms of the stuff i rented when this was around it was probably one of the better ones but you're right i don't think time's been very kind to it because some of the attitudes really stick out yeah it doesn't translate well over into this era at all hmm. so as i say if you're a fan of slasher movies and you've not seen it before and are curious you know you can check it out but it's not one that i'd rush towards if you love George Clooney, though, and you want to see him for 13 minutes, it's worth that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do the good burgers of uh, Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, do they agree with us? Well, it's actually not rated on Rotten Tomatoes um, <laughs> and has an 18% audience score. Okay. Then on IMDb, it has 4.3 out of 10, which I think is pretty respectable. Fair enough. Yeah, it's no, it's nothing groundbreaking. It you know plays around challenges the conventions of slasher movies, but it's not the best movie to do that. As in my opinion, we know which is the best movie that does that. So yeah, again, it's fine if you want to just as I say delve into the slasher movie history a bit more and check out movies that are not necessarily as well known. I think it it does that, but. The fact that, you know, 88 films are held me as some classic, that's very misleading. <laughs> yeah, it's not really a classic. It's a, an interesting failure, given what's uh, what we've just discussed. It's definitely an interesting failure, but it's certainly not a classic.
And for the second half of our George Clooney face-off double bill, we have another return. He's not returning to Horror High this time. He's facing off with the return of the Killer Tomatoes, which is directed by John DiBello and is a sequel to, surprise, surprise, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And we need to point out as well that not only do both films we're discussing in this podcast have return in their title, they were both distributed by New World Pictures as well, founded by Roger Corman, of course. Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Now, I had a much better time with this one. So, again, we're going back to a physical media-style synopsis because I'm going to read this from the back of the Arrow video Blu-ray. The Vegetables of Doom! The Killer Tomatoes are back, but this time around, they're going to have to contend with the late 80s George Clooney and his wicked mullet. Is that a fruit? Is it a vegetable? Nope, it's Return of the Killer Tomatoes. (laughs) Ten years on from the Great Tomato War, mankind lives in fear of another uprising by the waxy red menace. Meanwhile, Professor Gangrene sets out to pursue his own evil ends by creating an army of tomato militia men who somewhat conveniently look like regular men. (laughs) Following on from the 1978 cult classic Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, Return of the Killer Tomatoes came armed with a healthy sense of its own ridiculousness and would expand upon franchise that now includes four films, two TV series and a video game. So what are you waiting for? Make Return of the Killer Tomatoes one of your five a day now. What a great synopsis. It is. Uh, (laughs) I, I absolutely love this movie. I cannot say enough good things about Return of the Killer Tomatoes. I rented it when it first came out. I've seen it countless times since then. My sister and I still quote lines to each other from Return of the Killer Tomatoes. That's how much of a fan I am of this movie. It's such a good time. And it builds its world really well. Considering it is quite a low-budget movie, there's lots and lots of background. And it gives you the feel that even in a sort of silly movie like this, there's actually some sort of tomato war that's gone on and people are still scared about what might happen. So you get lots and lots of ridiculous what-ifs. You get, obviously, you get immediately you get the pizza place that can't use tomatoes. So it's using things like boysenberry sauce and peanut butter on pizza, which is just ridiculous. But it fits the movie really well. And the movie itself... We're going back to kind of films within films again. It starts because Return of the Killed Tomatoes is the subject of a really low-budget cable program called One Dollar Movie. And the One Dollar Movie for that week is going to be Return of the Killer Tomatoes. It doesn't get played immediately because the guy who's running One Dollar Movie likes a different movie about big-breasted women going down to the beach. But they cut that off fairly quickly and go back to Return of the Killer Tomatoes. You can tell from the first five minutes of this movie what the sense of humour is going to be like. And it's not that kind of slightly uncomfortable, misogyny-tinged thing that we got in Return to Horror High. This is pretty good-natured. It's very funny. And when the movie starts, if you haven't seen it before, you don't know what you're letting yourself in for. Because, of course, you've got this kind of, like game show style beginning that goes into a movie about you know like i guess one of those 1960s psychedelic beach movie type situations and then you finally get into the movies you're thinking hmm, where is this going and and it is it's actually clever like i think this movie 
doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. And I think in the 1980s, horror comedy was at its finest. And I think the genre was constantly trying to push itself further with what it could do and and play out on the twist. And just, as I say, it's that whole meta-narrative. And I think the 80s really did capitalise on, on that. So this has all the ingredients, excuse the pun, going <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for it. The characters are really likeable as well. They're really entertaining. Even the villain, as we were talking about in the synopsis, and Professor Gangrene, um, he looks like he's having an amazing time in this role. And it's, again, very tongue-in-cheek. And you have these army men that he's making from tomatoes that kind of look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. <laughs> That's what I got from it. Um, and then, of course, you have the love story and then the buddy movie as well between George Clooney and his friend and it because George Clooney in this movie has a bigger role but he's a supporting role playing the best friend of the main character I think he's very charming in it he's a bit of a ladies man it's you know he's kind of kind of playing on on that kind of stereotype that he's built up over the years yeah it's great and it has like its own soundtrack as well it's almost a bit of a pseudo musical in some ways nobody bursts into song but it has music that comes into like non-digestic music that basically explains on the plot a bit but it does it in such a fun way because it's that much like breaking the fourth wall and pointing at the audience it's like see what we're doing there so you even have like a really over-the-top romantic date scene with this love song playing so a lot of it is it's just good fun and I think it's one that you just need to sit back and just enjoy the hell out of because you won't be disappointed and if you especially like cult movies B movies and this one has so much charm to it yeah the romance scene it's kind of like a normal sort of romantic montage except that there's a mime that keeps interrupting <laughs> them and it just gets more and more extreme this mime turns up everywhere right to the point where they're in this adult shop testing out all these sex toys and the mime turns up there as well and ends up getting punched by the main character. It's just full of ludicrous situations like this and it has a good grip on genre because it's got the mad scientist, it's got Igor, his sidekick, but Igor isn't this sort of shriveled kind of Dobby style character. He's this hulking great blonde guy who's just taken a job as this sidekick until he gets an opportunity to present TV news. So he's going around doing things like a reporter. So you've got loads and loads of really weird asides. Every character has got their own thing. Even the smaller roles, they've got something memorable about them. And you've got the love interest Tara who's played by Karen Mistel, who's also in, and I'm going to mention the movie, Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. She's in that as well. But she's great as the, as the tomato girl, who's the love interest of the main character, Chad. And she has this odd obsession with toast, which is never fully explained in the movie. But somehow she likes toast and toasters. And at one point, she's doing this celebratory breakfast and she says something like, um, I will cook toast, eggs, bacon, toast, waffles and toast. Yeah, and then she also has her own little sidekick, which is this fuzzy little tomato um, known as FT. And it has quite a clever commentary on consumerism as well and product placement at the time. 
And I know that from reading in the Arrow Video essay that comes with the Blu-ray that they based FT off like Gizmo. And obviously when Gremlins got big and everybody wanted their own Gizmo, you're so cute and that. And literally at the end of this movie, you have a dad basically buying his daughter her very own FT because she you know absolutely loves it and it's like basic saying you should get one too like it's it's really just kind of speaking to the audience very much throughout and it's it's so funny i found it especially funny when the the moment where they completely break the fourth wall and you're basically realizing oh we're actually watching a movie being filmed and in order to keep the production going they need to increase the budget so they introduce product placement so you've got George Clooney with his Pepsi and his cornflakes and and everything just kind of unsubtly putting that in there just to generate the laugh so it's yeah it it's, does everything so well and I think even though this is a movie from 1988 it actually compared to Return to Horror High still holds up. It does yeah because it's got themes which still resonate now. I don't think it's pitched to that particular decade. It's got universal comedic themes in it, which you can still identify with it now. Certainly the stuff going on in the background is sometimes as interesting as the stuff going on in the foreground. There's things on the TV. There's They've suddenly decided that yachting has become a contact sport. So it's the America's Cup, but they're shooting at each other. There's the master of disguise who really isn't a master of disguise at all. He's just this big guy who puts on a couple of hats or a wig and they don't know what he's like. At some point, he turns up and the guy who runs the pizza place, who's the hero of the first movie, mistakes him for Colonel Gaddafi and there's a fight. But this guy looks nothing like him, but he's supposed to be this master of disguise. If you've got a movie that's dealing in those sort of things, you know you know it's not taking itself seriously whatsoever. And you've got people that are playing multiple roles, and they don't even try to pretend that they're not playing multiple roles. The director plays three different roles, I think. He's Charles White, who's this really horrible TV interviewer who just destroys this poor woman outside this restaurant after there's a tomato scare. And he suddenly decides that he's less interested in the tomato scare. He's more interested in why she couldn't get a date. So he just tears this woman to pieces. And then she gets upset and she runs off screaming. And then he just says, oh, this woman is obviously too upset to talk. He's just that much of an idiot. And then he says, right, okay, we need somebody else to talk to. And then he shouts off camera. He says, oh, hey, you there with the big nose. (laughs) How How would you like to be on camera with Charles White? And it's it's that sort of humour. But it's not really offensive. It's not very nasty. It's kind of, it's just ridiculous most of the way through. To the point where they're breaking the fourth wall so many times. There's a point at which Chad is trying to work out how to find Tara because she's been kidnapped. And there's a black and white monster movie, sort of a Frankenstein thing, playing on the TV. And the guy who's the mad scientist on the TV is giving him clues in the dialogue. He's going, oh, here's in my secret lab. You know, we can find all the answers in my secret lab. And he's sitting there going, I wonder how to fight. And he's going, here in my secret lab. He's going, laboratory. And then in the end he goes, oh, yes, I could go to the secret lab. And he's like, oh, about time. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's full of stuff like that. Yeah, the um, TV mad scientist is getting really frustrated <laughs> yeah. at him. And, yeah. 
it's just not you know you just enjoy it and as, as you said at the beginning that because it's built its world so well you just feel this is like really kind of genuine and authentic to a point within its own world if that makes sense because obviously it's nothing like the real world and obviously they've experienced the after effects of the first movie and that's still going strong for them so you don't have to have seen the first movie to see this one they actually provide exposition and flashbacks so i'm guessing you get to see key scenes from attack of the killer tomatoes just to piece everything together and then they can just move on and get on with the plot of this movie yeah there's a voiceover which is complaining about it because one dollar movie is showing this and then all of a sudden they get a phone call from somebody who says well hang on a minute like they just seem to be showing attack of the killer tomatoes again is this just not a load of scenes from the first movie and then they hang up on the call and go oh that's wrong number <laughs> but yeah uh, they even recycle the theme tune from attack of the killer tomatoes so it's the same theme tune as attack of the killer tomatoes but they've changed the lyrics so it's return of the killer tomatoes and it's new lyrics and there's one verse in attack of the killer tomatoes which talks about the demise of a guy called herman farbage who was taking out the garbage in the second movie herman farbage appears in the song again and it turns out he wasn't killed in the first movie that he survived it's full of flashbacks to the first one as well even if you haven't seen it it is referenced in the previous material so it brings back some of the characters one of the characters who is quite prominent in the first one doesn't get much of a role in the second one and by the end of it he's complaining to camera that he's only got two lines in the movie yeah so i haven't actually seen attack of the killer tomatoes but i feel i didn't need to see it to no. be able to fully invest in this one i mean i, I would like to see it now because i enjoyed this so much and my understanding is it never took itself seriously and it was essentially a parody of all the um sci-fi movies of the 50s that were big at the time and you know you'd have all these like ridiculous scenarios but what was even more ridiculous you know other than stuff like the blob and whatever it's tomatoes <laughs> so that perfect like drive-in movie style it even carries on after the credits because once it's finally resolved itself and it resolved itself in a ridiculous way because all the stuff they've set up in the first act about the one dollar movie secret word and the fact that there's a pizza that's gone into the air george clooney has thrown this pizza off camera and it never comes down well, it does come down in the third act, but all this stuff pays off right at the end. And then even in the credits, you get some voiceover and then you get another menace coming because carrots invade the one dollar movie studio and then massacre everybody. And then also in the end credits, it mentions that there is going to be a third installment. And so that I didn't know. And um, the third installment set in France. So this movie actually materialised. It's weird that they'd already decided that the third one was going to be Killer Tomatoes Go to France. And it does say it, because John Astin does shout, see you in France, right at the end of the movie. So I guess they had one eye on this keeping going. And it did, I, don't, I won't say it grew arms and legs, but it did sort of expand. I mean, I remember seeing the Killer Tomatoes cartoon on Saturday mornings, which was a more sanitized version of it but not much more i mean because this this isn't a particularly adult comedy it is a certificate 15 in the uk and there are some adult jokes in it but mostly it's extremely silly 
it's more listed with innuendos. I would agree that this is a movie, it's not exactly gory or anything like that, or like there's not much nudity in it whatsoever. So even though there is sexual references, I don't think this film is unsuitable for a younger audience. And even people that don't necessarily feel comfortable watching more extreme genre stuff, this is something a bit lighthearted. So I think it definitely has its place there. In the UK, it's currently a, a 15 rating. So I think that's kind of fair just for the sex references. I think tonally it's very similar as well to Elvira yes. in that way. Yes. And yes. I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. And I believe in Elvira, which was also produced by New World Pictures, they actually show Attack of the Killer Tomatoes in that as well. <laughs> they so do. it all comes together. <laughs> we did the ratings before for Return to Horror High, and I think they kind of lined up with us. Do they line up for Return of the Killer Tomatoes? Well, that's a big resounding no, because on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a brutally 0% tomato meter. Now, whether Rotten Tomatoes, because it has tomatoes in there, and they yeah. thought this movie was making fun of them, maybe that's why they took offence. I'm just kidding. But yeah, 0% tomato meter, 49% audience score. And then on IMDb, it has 5.2 out of 10. Oh, I'd give it more than that. I really enjoyed this film, but... These are the kind of movies I like when they're done well. Yeah, exactly. And I can see why people would think it would be a bit too silly for them. But 0% critic meter, I mean, come on, get a sense of humour. Why don't you? It's lampooning quite a lot of stuff. Yes, it's daft. Yes, the jokes are a bit corny. But it's a good time. I don't get that you, you, you've got no critics out there that reviewed it and got the slightest bit of enjoyment out of it. That's just disappointing. Maybe you're right. Maybe they thought, oh, it's tomatoist, so we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna review this correctly. We're just gonna say, right, okay, it's anti-tomato. We're rotten tomatoes, so you know, screw this movie. We're not gonna give it a good score. I love this movie. I absolutely love this movie. I will continue to love this movie. I think it's just the perfect mix of really silly comedy and a knowingness about the genre, and it's made by people who don't take themselves particularly seriously and they understand the problems about making low-budget movies and the fact that they don't have a lot of resources to play with, so they're just going to do whatever it takes to get it done. And they're just basically taking the piss out of themselves. Absolutely. And there's also that moment where if anybody speaks on film, they get paid. I thought that was another one of it. It's like a heightened comedy moment. Really, really great stuff. The budget for the movie itself was something around the two million mark, but they kind of downplay that because they are really mocking the whole low-budget film industry in this. Yeah. You know, we had a great time with this, not so much with Return to Horror High. However, this episode is all about George Clooney. We cannot forget he is the actor who led us to these two obscure 80s discoveries that I'd say Return of the Killer Tomatoes is more of a cult film. I'm kind of sad that I never got the chance to see it with an audience. Hopefully that will change one day because I think that would be such a great time. I'd love to see it on the big screen. Uh, Return to Horror High, as we've already said, it's not really a classic as such, but, you know, it's it's there in the 80s slasher film canon. But as for George Clooney, which was the better film and which was the better performance? We still have to do this, even though it is just so obvious as obvious as tropes in these films get pointed out this is going to be how obvious our rankings are going to be well 
it probably won't come as a massive surprise to say that the best performance was Return of the Killer Tomatoes, because he is charming in this. He does get a little bit of time to make his mark in Return to Horror High, but I think even though he's playing an actor that wants to get out of the movie, there's something about his performance which actually makes me think he actually really did want to get out of the movie. There's not anything particularly passionate about his performance in Return to Horror High. He's there, he looks gorgeous, that's about it. Return of the Killer Tomatoes, on the other hand, he gets to show his comedic side, he's fun, he's charming, he's witty, he's obviously extremely good-looking, and they play on all of those things. So, performance-wise, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Movie-wise, mm, this is going to be a difficult one. It's going to be Return of the Killer Tomatoes, of course, because it's one of my favourite movies. And I make no apology for saying it's one of my favourite movies. Anything going up against it was going to have a hard time. If you put pretty much any George Clooney movie up against this, I'd just go, you know what? Yeah, it's Return of the Kill Tomatoes. Solaris versus Return of the Kill Tomatoes. Yes, Return of the Kill Tomatoes. <laughs> Anything that was going up against this movie was on a hiding to nothing because I think it's so good. So what about you, really? Yeah, I'm exactly the same as you, performance, because obviously he has a lot more screen time in Killer Tomatoes, and as you say, he's got the comedic timing, he's charming, he's he's fun, he looks like he's having a great time with this as well. I mean, I'm not sure, obviously, if he was, could be just the power of acting, but to me, it seemed that he was really relishing in this part. And uh, Return to Horror High, I am amused by his role in it, how he just walks off the set, I think that stuff is great. But obviously, film-wise, I just enjoyed the hell out of Return of the Tomatoes, and I would definitely rewatch it again. And I want to see it with an audience. That is my goal in life now, <laughs> to get to see this movie on the big screen with a genre audience. After a few drinks, a few bits of popcorn, and yeah. I'm so happy that people are discovering Return of the Kill Tomatoes, because at the time, I felt I was this voice just howling into the wilderness, but more and more people are picking it up and loving it now. And I can't get enough of that. I'm I'm there for spreading the word of Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And with that all said, if you're a fan of Return of the Killer Tomatoes, let us know. Let us also know if you have seen any of its sequels or TV adaptations. I'd love to hear more about that. And I wonder if there's a place to watch them because I'm quite intrigued now. And also, what is your personal favourite George Clooney movie? Have you got a favourite role of his? Just let us know. It can be anything he's done. He's had such an expansive career. He's still going strong. So let us know. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 56 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy our content, you can follow us on social media. We are on all the platforms, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at HD Movie Podcast. Next episode. Well, we've done a couple of 80s movies. I think we should be getting right bang up to date this time. And we are going to get right bang up to date with a movie that has just been released on Netflix. What's it going to be, Hayley? So the movie that is brand new to Netflix is actually a crime drama mystery thriller, and it is called The Weekend Away. I love a good thriller, as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, so I can't wait to get into this and uh, see what suspense we have in store. Brand new movie as well, so I can't wait. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and we'll see you soon. 
The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.